um, um, theory, uh, his account of what philosophy is, um, and so his book is doing what he says philosophy does, namely is um, carrying out this genetic uh, process, um, understanding the essence of a, a technical object, um, or sorry, the essence of technicity, which goes beyond any one technical object uh, through a, a genetic mode of thinking. Um, so uh, let's start with the conclusion. Uh, I can start reading. Um, I'll read a couple of paragraphs because these are short. To this day, the reality of the technical object has been relegated to the background behind the reality of human work. The technical object has been apprehended through human work, thought, and judged as an instrument, adjuvant, or product of work. However, what ought to be capable in favor of man himself to carry out a reversal that would enable what is human in the technical object to appear directly without passing through the relation of work? It is work that must be known as a phase of technicity, not technicity as a phase of work. For it is technicity that is the whole of which work forms a part, not the reverse. A naturalistic definition of work is insufficient. To say that work is the exploitation of nature by man in society is to reduce work to an elaborate reaction by man, taken as a species, in confrontation with nature, to which he adapts and which conditions him. What is at stake here is not a question of knowing whether this determinism in regard to the nature of man relation is one way or contains reciprocity. The hypothesis of reciprocity does not change the basic schema, which is to say the schema of conditioning and the reactional aspect of work, in which case it is work that gives the technical object its meaning and not the technical object that gives its own meaning to work. So this, uh, to me, sounds like he's um, setting out his own or, or demarcating his own uh, project from um, a Marxist uh, philosophy of technology uh, or of techniques, I should say. Um, uh, so he's he wants to he, he is arguing that work uh, is a secondary category, um, and uh, I think we could also translate uh, work instead of work, we could say labor. Um, I think it would be the same. Uh, uh, it would be a, a, an acceptable translation of Le Travail. Um, but um, he, uh, yeah, so he's, he's arguing for the secondariness of, uh, of work. Um, work is secondary to techniques rather than the other way around. So I think by the first part, the first um, sentence in this second paragraph, uh, one might sense that he's going to, uh, at this moment, really tempted to offer a definition, any definition of work, but uh, I think that won't be coming in the rest of the conclusion. Uh, what he's going to do uh, mainly, as you said, is like uh, flip the order. Uh, not subordinate techniques to work, right? Yeah, um, I guess we'll have to see as we go along to what extent he, he gives us a new understanding of work. Um, um, but yeah, so he, he gives one uh, possible definition, this, uh, this what he calls the naturalist definition of work, which would be, would be to say that um, Work is the exploitation of nature by human beings. Um, um, 
and he, he thinks this is insufficient um, because it uh, would reduce work to um, uh, to a, a sort of reaction of a human being to um, the natural world, um, uh, and it would it doesn't um, it doesn't account for um, the technical object specificity, I guess we could say, um, so that um, it's in in work uh, understood as part of a technical operation. There's a, um, a specific relationship between a human being and the natural world. It's not just a, a sort of general face-to-face -face relation of human and nature. It's a, a determinate uh, schema of operation that he's um, set out in earlier parts of his work. Uh, so I think that's the objection here, is that it, it's uh, too general, basically. Mm -hmm. All right, so we can go on to the next paragraph, then, if uh, someone else would like to read. From the perspective offered here, work can be taken as an aspect of the technical operation, which is irreducible to work. There is work only when man must offer his organism as tool-bearer, that is, when man must, along with his organism and his psychosomatic unity, follow the step-by-step -step unfolding of the human-nature relation. Work is the activity through which man actualizes the mediation between the human species and nature within himself. In this case, we can say, in, in this case, we say that man operates as tool-bearer because he acts on nature in his activity and follows this action step-by-step, gesture-by-gesture. There is work when man cannot entrust the technical object with the function of mediation between the species and nature and must fulfill this function of relation himself through his body, his thought, his action. Man thus lends his own individuality as a living being in order to organize this operation. It is in doing this that he is a tool bearer. On the other hand, when the technical object is concretized, the mixture of nature and man is constituted at the level of this object. Operation on the technical being is not exactly work. Indeed, in work, man coincides with a reality that is not human, submits to this reality, and to a certain extent, slides between natural reality and human intention. In work, man models matter according to a form. With this form, which is the intention of a result, comes a predetermination of what must be obtained at the end of the work, ouvrage, in accordance with the pre-existing needs. This form intention is not part of the matter onto which work applies itself. It expresses a utility or necessity for man, but it does not come from nature. The activity of work is what forms the link between natural matter and form, which comes from man. Work is an activity that succeeds in making two realities, as heterogeneous as matter and form, coincide and renders them synergetic. And the activity of work must make and the activity of work makes man aware of the two terms he synthetically relates, because the worker must have his eyes fixed on these two terms, which he must bring closer together. This is the norm of work, not on the interiority itself of the complex operation through which this belonging, this bringing together is obtained. Work masks the relation in favor of the terms. So he's bringing back this. Uh this idea that he uh, introduced, I believe, in the first part of the book, um, that uh, the human being uh, as a tool bearer is uh, basically uh, standing in the place of a technical individual. Um, um, so insofar as uh, a technical object becomes individuated, uh, 
um, it is able to replace a human being uh, in the sense that uh, the, the machine, the individuated technical object, um, uh, carries the tools that previously the human being had to carry. Um, and uh, so treating, uh, so the work uh, in the proper sense or in the narrow sense that you want to use it here, work is uh, an operation of a human being uh, as a tool bearer. Um, and so this is a, um, a narrow sentence of work because once the, the technical object becomes individuated, um, it no, the human being no longer has to, to work in this proper sense, um, whatever operations of you know, uh, supervision and maintenance and so on uh, that human beings have to do on these machines that are now individuated is not work properly speaking because it's not um, it's not the human being that is acting on matter. It's uh, the machine that's doing that. And then we get into um, this uh, hylomorphic schema, so the the form matter schema, um, which uh, when we get to the uh, individuation book, we'll see uh, a long development uh, of this idea in in that book as well. Um, but he he argues that the um, the form matter schema um, is uh, loses sight of the interaction between matter and form, um, the, the sort of middle term. Um, it, it looks at the the, the two um, the two external terms of matter and form, but it doesn't um, it doesn't account for the way that the form uh, is imposed onto the matter um, and the physical operation of, uh, of informing matter. Um, and so uh, in the same way in, in this passage here, he, uh, he argues that work is, um, because work has this character of, of uh, this hylomorphic character, the, the worker um, has, uh, is, is aware of the, the goal to be achieved, the form to be imposed, and at the end of the matter, on which the, the form is going to be imposed, but the actual um, technical operation, the the middle term between those two uh, external terms, is um, uh, sort of disappears from awareness, and uh, it's sort of hidden in that operation. Um, so, work uh, for that reason again is, is not. Um, can be taken as, as the fundamental term for him um, or, or the fundamental um, operation. Uh, we, have to, we have to understand work in relation to technicity rather than uh, the other way around. Everyone's quiet today. Hello. Hi. Sorry, I, was, I, I can't sit in my chair because of complicated body reasons, but I'm like lying on my back, so I have to sit up to push it so, so I can talk. Um, I was thinking that um, that the it was interesting the way he described the the, the bringing the two the two terms together, right? And um, the, the he, he kind of explicitly was I don't know that of course this is the English translation, which is so far not so great, but the, he seems to cash a lot of value out um, in terms of the, the seeing of the bringing together of the, of the two terms of involved in the work. 
So it's the, it's uh, almost like the, there's this kind of like, I, I think the idea, well, for what, the way that I would, I guess, throw something at it is to say that it's almost like a way to like make work kinetic again, to kind of like bring, bring the conceptualization of work back to the mere kinetic aspect of the operational frame or the operational context, which I think that he wants to give a broader account of the operational context, um, which he, which I guess he, that's what I'm calling his, um, um, the, the technical, the context of the technical object, I suppose, in this, in this sort of way. I think to do this, he's, he's kind of making room for a specific kind of place for the kinetic function of work within the operational context of the technicity. Yeah, I think maybe, um, and maybe instead of a kinetic, we, we might want to use the word dynamic, um, uh, a, a dynamic uh, approach to work, um, just because, um, you know, dynamics has to do with, with forces, um, uh, and that's precisely what he has in mind here, is the actual operations of forces that the interaction uh, between um, the the worker, uh, the tool that the worker is is holding or, or operating, and uh, the matter that they're operating on. Um, so there's a, a dynamic operation uh, that the worker uh, is carrying out um, in this process. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess dy dynam dynamis and kinesis are both Greek terms that are used in, in these contexts. So that's probably where we can investigate that delineation if there was a significant distinction to be made. Um, I think um, kinesis just seems to me to be more kind of subject oriented. That's why I kind of chose that term. Because it seems to me that when you have dyna dynamics, you can just kind of be talking about like uh, sy systemic forces in kind of isolated contextually from any kind of like um, human action in some way, right? Whereas like work seems to be, the, the, the idea with work seems to be more so the, it's not just that there's that third term, because you're saying there's like a third term between the two terms, but the, the third term is just kind of an abstraction we use to kind of describe our own mediating function, which is obscured by the, the terms which we're bringing together, right? Isn't that, I don't know, maybe. I don't know, I'm gonna let other people talk now and lie back down. Yeah, I think um, I think that's right. Um, it's uh, it's because in work um, in work it's the human being who um, brings the terms together, the, the two terms matter and form. Um, it's because it's the human being that brings them together that the the middle term is uh, is um, or the mediation that the human being brings about. Um, is uh, hidden in the process. Um, uh, veiled, I think, is the word he uses. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so it's uh, um, the human being carries out the process, but also um, is unaware of the, the mediation um, that they're bringing about. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph. I'll read. The servile condition of the worker has, moreover, often contributed to making the operation by which matter and form are made to coincide more obscure. The man who orders work to be done is concerned with what must appear in the given order, 
in terms of what content and of the raw material that is the condition of execution rather than with the operation that enables the process of taking form to occur. The attention is given to form and matter, not to the process of taking form as operation. The hylomorphic schema is thus a couple in which the two terms are clear and the relation obscure. Under this particular aspect, the hylomorphic schema represents the transposition into philosophical thought of the technical operation reduced to work and taken as a universal paradigm of the genesis of beings. It is indeed a technical experience, but a very incomplete technical experience that is at the basis of this paradigm. The generalized use of the hylomorphic schema in philosophy introduces an obscurity that comes from the insufficiency of the schema's technical basis. So here I, I wonder um, if these critiques of Aristotle really hit home or not, and I don't have the expertise to really no, to say for sure, really, because it's, it's very kind of dicey. I don't know if, uh, I think it's possible that Aristotle would accept some of the, some of the conclusions of the criticisms when he was making a discussion, so. Yeah, I guess we can distinguish maybe two different levels of the criticism and that, uh, that Simon Dahl is making of the hylomorphic schema. Um, so the first level would be that, um, the relationship between the terms is obscure. Um, so the we have a uh, within the hylomorphic schema we have a, a clear representation of matter and form, but we have uh, only an obscure representation of what the interaction between those two terms is. Uh, so that's uh, a first level criticism. Um, and then the second one is more of a, a social criticism, we can say, um, and it's that this. Um, schema of operation corresponds to um, uh, something like a, a slave owner's um, position on the technical operation, um, so the, or the master in, in a more general sense. Um, so the master orders a certain job to be done. Um, they order, uh, you know, this much raw material and, uh, you know, it should be put into this form. Um, but then the actual operation itself is not um, is not part of the um, the the schema that they are operating with. Um, so they uh, uh, it's the hylomorphic schema um, uh, is the result of, of this uh, social organization in which some people are given are, are able to order um, work to be done, and then other people have to carry out those orders. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's these two levels of, this, of the of the criticism. Um, I think it's possible Aristotle might have uh, accepted the first level of the criticism. Um, like he might have said there was a certain, or he might have uh, agreed that there was a certain obscurity um, uh, having to do with the uh, relationship between the two terms in the holomorphic schema. But uh, the second one, I think, is something he definitely would not be able to. Um, except given his whole account of um, of slavery um, as a, a natural condition and, and so on. I don't know. Yeah, I, I would, I'd be interested in looking into it. I'm, I'm less familiar with Aristotle's account of um, of social orders, like um, like slave slavery, the slavery related aspects, as I am with the kind of. Um, metaphysical arguments about the kind of incompleteness of 
certain types of dynamic aspects of both um, action and thinking. Um, what, whereas, I don't, I'm not even sure where to look for uh, Aristotle's account of slavery, but I have heard kind of like through the grapevine that he has some kind of problematic account of slavery. I wonder though, even even if you had a, a kind of what I would imagine would be a kind of Aristotelian account of slavery, if that would be too incommensurate with what Simonin is making out an account like this um, in relation to. But I think to note to figure that out more, I think you would have to really kind of see, look look at how how he really um, look at the hylomorphic argument much much more closely, I guess. Um, and uh, that, that I guess, um, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's very difficult for me to, to deduce anything very particular about the critique of Aristotle because of how horrible of an Aristotle scholar I am and how I haven't done sufficient like reading in the mat on the matter already and just kind of go on vague impressions and such. But, um, I do, I do think that there is a sense in which like the order work work uh, relation is is something very very um, very very central to the historical tradition post Aristotle. I just have to kind of see back and I'm not sure what his his account of uh, uh, the servile condition of the worker um, because I mean uh, of course there's a a lot of people like to make a distinction within. Slave, slavery talk between some kind of like pure slavery, some actual slavery, and then some kind of like general servitude where we have like a um, a somewhat like legal sanctioned like indentured servitude or for some kind of economic reason you have some kind of service. And even in general, kind of there's an overlap where work itself is kind of seen as sort of service for, um, and uh, it almost it almost seems that there's a continuity all the way down between work, work, and the conception of work, and the conception of slavery. So in the, in, the, in the declaration that like slavery is like natural in some way or part of the natural world, I don't think that would alone would be enough to kind of exclude the Aristotelian um, perspective from from being commensurate with this kind of account. I guess I don't know. I don't know. It's a really interesting and difficult question that I really. Have, not thought about until just now or so. Yeah, the reason I say I said that um, uh, that I think the the second level the uh, the um, this criticism at, at the social level um, is something that Aristotle would not be able to accept is that um, uh, so in in Aristotle's account of slavery. Um, so he argues not it's not just that slavery is like a natural condition, but that certain people are naturally slaves. Um, that you know, certain people are, are born into slavery, uh, you know, their and their their character, their personality, or whatever is is suited for slavery. Um, and uh, and this is a, a perfectly just arrangement um, uh, that certain people should be born into slavery and is uh, is part of a, a just. Um, you know, constitution of a, a social arrangement, um, and uh, um, but in particular, it's it's not the slave who um, who has knowledge uh, in the proper sense for Aristotle. It's the the man of leisure, uh, the slave owner, who 
um, is able to um, uh, to have theoretical knowledge, um, um, and uh, in particular the the highest kind of theoretical knowledge, theology or uh, you know uh, first philosophy, um, and uh, um, you know science in general is the preserve of the slave owner um, or the the man of leisure um, rather than of the uh, uh, of the slave. So I don't think. Aristotle would be able to accept the idea that there is a certain type of knowledge, um, namely of the relationship between uh, form and matter, that um, the slave has uh, sort of preeminently uh, as opposed to the uh, slave owner. Um, perhaps, and I think it would, it would kind of, I guess, well, first I want to ask you, where, where in um, Aristotle's writing is, would you find Argument is in the politics, or is it in um, like what do you know? Do you know which texts would be the ones to look at for those those arguments? Uh, it's either in the politics or the Nicomachean Ethics. I can't remember. I, I think the politics, but I'm not sure. I'd have to look that up. Okay. Yeah, I was, I was going to say something else, but I don't want to. I don't want to um, go too far down. T towards Aristotle, I guess, because it's, that would be a secondary task, I suppose. Although a good amount of Simone didn't seems to be um, this uh, critique of hylomorphism, so it's probably a fairly important point. Mm -hmm. For me, it isn't. Yeah, this uh, this whole passage here on on hylomorphism is a, a sort of a recapitulation of the the more detailed discussion in uh, the individuation book. Um, which uh, we should get to um, hopefully in the next few weeks, um, and uh, we'll see more uh, a more detailed criticism of uh, the hylomorphic schema and his alternative. He or because it's a, it's a criticism, um, but it's not a, an outright rejection of the hylomorphic schema. He just argues that it uh, it's incomplete because it doesn't include the um, the interaction between um, matter and form. Uh, so he wants to supplement it um, by taking that interaction, that, that middle term or the relation between the two as being uh, fundamental um, and uh, investigating that relationship rather than starting from the terms and then leaving the relationship um, uh, obscure. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph. Indeed, it is not enough to enter the workshop with the worker or slave, or even to take the mold into one's own hands and to operate the potter's wheel. The point of view of the working man is still too external to the process of taking form, which is the only thing that is technical in itself. It will be necessary to be able to enter the mold with the clay, to be both mold and clay at once, to live and feel their common operation, in order to be able to think the process of taking form in itself. For the worker, elaborates two technical half chains that prepare the technical operation. He prepares the clay, makes it malleable without lumps, without air bubbles, and relatively prepares the mold. He materializes the form by making it into a wooden mold and makes matter pliable, capable of receiving information. Then he puts the clay into the mold and presses it but it is the system constituted by the mold and the pressed clay that is the condition of the process of taking form. It is the clay that takes form according to the mold, not the worker who gives it its form. The working man prepares the mediation, but he doesn't fulfill a complete it. 
It is the mediation that fulfills itself on its own once the conditions have been created. Even though man is very close to this operation, he does not know it. His body pushes the mediation to fulfill itself, enables it to fulfill itself, but the representation of the technical operation does not appear in work. It is the essential part that is missing, the active center of the technical operation that remains veiled. For as long as man practiced work without using technical objects, technical knowledge could only be transmitted in an implicit and practical form through professional habits and gestures. This motivating motor knowledge is effectively what enables the elaboration of two technical half chains, the one starting from form and the one starting from matter. But it does not and cannot go further. It stops before the operation itself. It does not penetrate inside the mold. In its essence, it is pre-technical and not technical. Mm. So this is still drawing from the, the individuation book um, and um, you know, uh, specifying the, the criticism uh, that hylomorphism doesn't uh, deal with the interaction um, between matter and form. And uh, so here he, he gives the specific case of a, um, um, the formation of bricks um, from a, so you, you take clay and you put it in a mold um, and then uh, the interaction, the physical interaction of the, the, the wooden mold and the, the clay um, uh, forms the brick, uh, puts the, the form into the matter uh, and gives the, the brick form. Um, and so here the, the work, the actual operation of the worker is to prepare the, the two um, half chains, um, uh, one leading from the form uh, through the preparation of the of the clay and um, uh, um, you know ensuring that it, it has the proper characteristics that it needs in order to take on form and then the other half chain that starts from the the form uh, and puts it into a, a wooden mold puts it into the shape of this wooden mold and prepares the mold to receive the clay um, and uh, the, these two half chains are what the worker does, but then the actual operation of taking form is something that comes about without the worker's um, participation or or knowledge even. Um, so the the worker has this um, uh, implicit knowledge uh, or, or practical knowledge that um, of the of the, um, uh, the professional habits and gestures, um, as he puts it. Um, so the, this is like a sort of guilds type knowledge of uh, technical operations, but the actual um, form taking itself is something that is brought about without the workers' uh, participation and knowledge. I guess I'm having a hard time understanding why the working man is just the mediation, I guess. Uh, Um, so the, the the actual mediation is what's brought about within the mold, um, but the, what the worker does is to uh, prepare the two um, ends of the relationship um, to these half chains that he describes it. Um, so one chain that leads from the form and another chain that leads from the matter. Um, but the actual link between those two chains is something that the worker does not bring about. It, the, so the, the real mediation is... Uh, a natural process um, 
that is uh, sort of set in motion by the worker, but the worker does not actually bring about themselves. I guess I'm also struggling a little bit with understanding what it, what it would mean to penetrate inside the mold. Like, is it like is it a, is it would would is it a, a more uh, more scientific understanding of the kind of the the conditions of of mold of of the kind of clay and the and the mold is it um yeah i just i'm having difficulties with that because it seems to me like the like the um like the worker would be aware of that or something like it, that in, in preparing the clay for instance that they would they would have an understand of it, an understanding of its correct viscosity or something like that that there would be all kinds of like signals to it to the worker to to understand kind of what the best sort of output conditions will be once it goes through the mold or something. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll see partly um, as we go in, into the, in the next couple of paragraphs. So he'll give a better, um, uh, a more detailed explanation of what he means or what the contrasting type of knowledge would mean, uh, the, the knowledge that he describes as um, you know, entering into the mold with the clay. Um, but uh, I think one way we can characterize it, given what we have uh, so far, um, so he, he describes the, the knowledge of the worker as an implicit knowledge. Um, and I think that would um, entail that the knowledge, the, the true technical knowledge that he's going to develop in the next paragraph uh, has to be a, an explicit knowledge of some kind. Um, so it's uh, the worker, uh, yes, so they understand um, the, some of the properties that the clay has to have in order to um, take on a form in this process of work. Um, um, but the, that knowledge is an implicit knowledge. They they might know, you know, the, the texture uh, by feel uh, of what the clay should feel like, um, but they don't have a um, an explicit knowledge of, you know, the, the clay has to have X percentage of, of moisture and uh, whatever other properties um, uh, you know, understood in explicit terms um, what those properties are, um, so they they can they can bring about the the operation in a reliable manner. Uh, they have a, um, this implicit knowledge that's part of the um, uh, 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 their capacity to carry out the operation, but they don't have the capacity to um, um, express explicitly what these properties are. So he's looking. It's kind of like a higher, a high, a higher order understanding of causality or something. Yeah. So I think what we're going to get to is um, what he described earlier as the the pure schemas of operation of technical objects, um, which is part of his, uh, you know, general technology yeah. and the science that he wants to um, develop. Um, so we're going to see. Um, uh, so it's a. Uh, um, uh, I guess uh, an abstract understanding of uh, the dynamics of the technical operation, um, uh, an understanding of you know what sorts of forces are interacting in the technical process, um, and it's stated in in theoretical terms, in explicit terms that can be communicated to others, rather than uh, an implicit knowledge that can only be learned through practice. Got it. Yeah, I think. I think that that's right. I think that there's um, there's the in, the independence of the operational context is 
what what that hinges on. And I think that he's trying to kind of give give a kind of um, an account which excludes on one on one side the kind of bearing down of reflexivity in in the the broad sense, and then in the other sense that kind of instrumentality of work which is really coming to fore in these paragraphs here as being kind of a uh, an insufficient condition to account for the individ- individuated uh, domain of technical objects, uh, which I'm, I'm, I'm calling the operational context, I guess. But I, I'm not using the, the correct Simundonian terminology probably, but that's the way I'm kind of catching out the, the philosophical argument here is that which is actually the, has a lot of really, really interesting implications because um, almost in all cases, operational the operational context is reduced to instrumental factors of, of the working on the problem, um, the working on the technical problem or something like that just kind of is what resolves it. Or the, um, the other sense, the kind of reflexive kind of systematic solutions for the way that the networks of technical objects just kind of resolve themselves. So these are our kind of imp- two implicit biases, I think, when it comes to consideration of technical objects to kind of be hyper-reflexive or hyper-instrumental. And I think that what's going on with the, um, the delineation of work as only, only um, uh, as an incomplete um, uh, way of, of getting to the, the, the independence necessary for the domain of the, the technical objects, I think is, Anyway, I forgot. I forgot how I started the sentence, so I don't think I can finish it grammatically correctly. But I hope y'all follow me. I hope y'all can follow me. I do think that the incompleteness and the work concept is really, really uh, being tied in together here, very most so because, of, especially when you have the, uh, the 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 human who who is doing the work, the, the working, um, is not doing their fulfilling. So there's a separation between the action and the manifestation of the action, which is like exact and uh, and impermeable, sort of, right? That's what I think is most striking here. And this is the the height of that uh, that point. Yeah, I think that's a good way of uh, of, of uh, putting it: is that the the work, the operation of work, is distinct from the fulfillment of the. Um, form-taking operation. Um, so the worker um, is able to um, put the form and matter in contact through these two um, semi-chains um, or half-chains. Um, but uh, the actual fulfillment of that form-taking uh, is um, is something that happens without the worker's uh, participation. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph. Um, where are we? Where is uh, uh, technical knowledge on the contrary? Technical knowledge on the contrary consists in starting from what happens inside the mold in order to find the different elaborations that can prepare it by starting from the center. Man cannot leave the center of operation in the dark when he no longer intervenes as tool bearer. It is the center that must effectively be produced by the technical object which does not think or feel, and which does not acquire habits. In order to construct the technical object that will function, man needs to represent to himself the way of functioning that coincides with technical operation which accomplishes it. 
the functioning of the technical object belongs to the same order of reality, the same system of causes and effects as the technical operation. There is no longer heterogeneity between the preparation of the technical operation and the functioning of this operation. This operation prolongs the technical functioning just as the functioning anticipates this operation. The functioning is an operation in the operation of functioning. One cannot speak of the work of a machine, but only of its functioning, which is an ordered ensemble of operations. Form and matter, if they still exist, are at the same level and belong to the same system. There's continuity between the technical and the natural. Uh, maybe you can also read just that next little short paragraph. Sure. Making the technical object is no longer accompanied by this obscure zone between form and matter. Pre-technical knowledge is also pre-logical in the sense that it constitutes a couple of terms without discovering the interiority of the relation, like in the hylomorphic schema. Technical knowledge, on the contrary, is logical in the sense that it seeks the interiority of the relation. Hmm. Interesting logical distinctions here in that second little paragraph. Yeah, what's pre-technical knowledge? Uh, so pre-technical knowledge is the, the knowledge that he was characterizing in the last paragraph as um, implicit knowledge. Um, so the knowledge that uh, the worker has of the technical operation without um, a knowledge of the uh, interaction between matter and form itself as opposed to the technical knowledge, which he's characterizing in this paragraph as being a knowledge that starts from the, the center of the operation, the, uh, the interaction itself, um, and uh, sort of works outwards from there. Yeah, that last um, short paragraph um, is a little bit obscure, I think. Um, so pre-technical knowledge is also pre-logical in the sense that it constitutes a couple of terms without dis discovering the interiority of the relation. Um, so, in what sense, does it, what, why does that make it pre-logical? Um, I'm not been sure about that. I think here, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Um, I, it makes me think about the word habit here, when we think about pre-logical and this implicit knowledge, like, where, how come it's a kind, how, how, what, is there no logic to habits, I guess? It's also pre-logical in the sense that it constitutes a couple of terms of this community. Yeah. Sorry. Technical knowledge on the code. No, I think I, I think I know what, you, what you're getting at. I think here, logical is being used in a, a, a sort of a strong sense. Um, so it's not just um, doesn't just mean coherence or um, uh, um, consistent or something along those lines. Um, but it, it means some, something like a, um, a scientific, um, a, a clear representation um, uh, with a, um, yeah, like a, a scientific definition of terms um, and uh, um, uh, yeah, so that would be opposed to habitual um, knowledge. So even if um, habits might have uh, a logic in a, a broader sense, they might have a certain coher coherence and consistency in the specific sense that he's using the term logic here, um, they don't have this explicit um, uh, explicit definitions and, and uh, uh, scientific clearness to them. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think here, I, um, 
I, I oftentimes, um, when logic is used in the broad, in the broad sense, I, in, I used to tell people about like a paraconsistent or uh, pluralistic metal logical kind of positions. And, uh, that didn't ever work very well speaking with, um, Anglophone people. They're just like, logic means the thing goes with the other thing. So I, I tend, now I, I have, I say, oh, there's, they must be talking about the European logic <laughs> because what I'm really talking about, and I don't want to go into too many details when I talk to them usually is the, um, Hegel's criticisms of Aristotelian logic and the science of logic and the kind of dialectical logic and transcendental logic tradition stemming from the critical project, et cetera, and the tradition of German idealism, which I think a lot of European authors will kind of write, um, write in as though for us, the reader, it's just extremely obvious, like all this, oh, of course, logic is this extremely huge project. Um, when, when a lot of people in the English-speaking world think of logic as purely the kind of formal apparatus which Hegel criticized kind of semi-ironically for um, it being a kind of, uh, he, for it being too Aristotelian, too, too, too much following in the organon, the kind of syllogistic, me mechanistic, syllogistic, logical tradition where you, put, you, fill, you fill it in and it works out this exact way in the sense of classical logic. And so he, where Hegel criticized this classical um, conception of logic, not for its logical merits, but for the pragmatic like um, use of the the formal apparatus, I think Simone Doan is just almost in the same way, kind of echoing this this very kind of you know at this point hundred year old, hundred fifty year old um, criticism of Aristotelian logic as being this kind of like spiritless formalism, um, and so I think that when he's talking about logic, he's definitely trying to. Um, talk about it and he wants to point to point to something not entirely obvious, point to something related to this this interiority, um, this broad project of logic. So anything besides the mere mechanistic movement of syllogistic formulations. Anyway, that's my spiel on uh, logic, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, I think he's definitely not uh, Simon here is definitely not um, thinking about uh, when we talk about logic. He's not saying um, yeah, like the the syllogism or something um, uh, purely formal on those lines. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I think I think logic logical thought here means something like. Um, uh, you know, a thinking that is um, carried out using uh, strict scientific definitions, uh, you know, fully explicit definitions of terms and uh, uh, clearly uh, explicitly represented concepts and, and so on. Um, uh, and I think, so I think um, maybe we can characterize, so the distinction between the pre-technical thought uh, is pre-logical in the sense that it's not fully clarified um, the the um, the relationship between the terms is left obscure, um, and then uh, technical thought is logical in the sense that it um, expresses this relationship uh, in uh, explicit terms. I think that might be what he's getting at here. Mm. 
I don't know. I, I doubt it in a sense that um, I think it, I think it's defined in explicit terms, which I think he's trying to call non-logical. Well, you, sorry, go ahead. Just, uh, it looks to me also like uh, he means logic, uh, as you said earlier, in a grand sense, maybe since he has some exchange going here with Aristotle and all philosophical tradition. Uh, I. I feel he might mean uh, a skip premise kind of thing, since we are talking about the middle term here between form and matter, which is obscured. So maybe it is like uh, I think he wants things to be neat, so he's bringing into he's bringing logic into it uh, alongside techniques. So he's casting his net wide in a sense. That's how it looks to me. Yeah, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that, that middle term um, because, yeah, I, I haven't thought of, of that connection here. But yeah, in uh, in syllogistic, um, you need to have three terms in order for uh, uh, to produce a, a valid argument, uh, and then one term has to be shared between the two premises. So the that middle term, um, like all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Um, man is the middle term that is shared between the two premises. Um, um, but uh, yeah, so I guess um, insofar as the pre-technical knowledge doesn't um, doesn't um, have a, a middle term, it doesn't have that that operate the uh, operational center between um, the form and matter. It, it's uh, it's not a, a valid syllogism. It, it doesn't. It's not a, a logical thinking in that sense. Um, whereas the uh, Technical knowledge, um, which does have uh, a representation of the operational center of the op of the um, form taking, um, it has the middle term represented, and so it uh, it's um, uh, it does coincide with the, the form of the syllogism. I, I think this this is one of my my favorite parts of philosophy is um, is the the context of the enthymetic. I guess is the, the term people use to describe the, um, the 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 syllogistic formalism with one incomplete or oh, that is incomplete and because it's missing one element. Um, this is just such a famous and I think like very very under under referenced under mentioned kind of aspect of of the philosophical tradition is this uh, notion of like the incompleteness of the syllogism and its implications for the um the logical operation i guess yeah there's a whole um um i guess tradition uh, or sort of minor tradition of having to do with uh, material inferences um so inferences that um that have to do with the properties of concepts um, and rather than the form of the propositions. Um, so something like um, uh, if A is east of B, then B is west of A. Um, that's a perfectly valid inference, um, but it depends not on the form of the proposition, but on the the content of the concepts east and west. Um, and there's a one, I guess, um, approach to this type of inference um, um, that would see the, 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 these inferences as enthymemes, uh, as uh, missing a premise. 
so you have an outer premise that says like um, everything that is east of or for every a that is east of b then uh, b is west of a or you have to add a, a universal premise um, along those lines and then you could make the inference um, but there's also and um, this may be going a little bit of a, a digression, but there's a, the famous piece by Lewis Carroll on uh, um, Achilles and the tortoise um, with the, with, uh, where he shows how you can always, um, any any modus ponens um, inference, so any any inference of the form, uh, if A then B, A therefore B, you can always treat it as missing a premise and you have to add another um, uh, conditional in order to fill in the gaps and then uh, uh, you know, that, and that, that, that next um, conditional is missing uh, a premise and you have to add another conditional to fill in the gap, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's um, good reason to think that uh, inference has to, that there's a, a sort of more basic um, material inference and then formal inference is a, um, a, a secondary um, uh, process which is sort of derived from it. Um, that's sort of an excursus on uh, on logic, um, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting um, issue within philosophy of logic. I think that, that actually could be more relevant here than, I think it could be very, very relevant here, actually. Like if we take the entire like context of the, the, dif the difference between work and the, the um, the operation, the more full operational context, the technical objects. Um, I think if we take that all in the logical sense and then think of like the work of solving logical problems, for instance, and then we we kind of think about the the purely kind of formal resolution versus like the action of the work of the solving of it. You know, so in our working, it's just an incomplete mediation where we're obscuring the middle term. But what is this middle term? It's not the middle term in the syllogism that we're working on necessarily, right? It's the middle term here is us as as uh, as the worker on this on this project, and it's our 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 the constitution of the domain of the technical object by our work, which we can't see as while we're working on it. It's almost a Heideggerian uh, argument in that regards, right? Maybe I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe I just I just thought of that just just now because because there's a sense in which like Heidegger does argue for this like sense where you're you're if you're fully fully involved in the 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 work uh, who's a tool tool being or something like that then you are um, you are you lack a certain kind of, of of technical knowledge it's only when something goes wrong that that technical knowledge is uh, is seeked out right? isn't that the Heideggerian argument I'm really bad at Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's sort of roughly the the um, position that Heidegger um, sets out in, in being at time. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's the idea is that um, the the sort of um, basic, the more fundamental relationship to uh, a hammer, say, is not um, not to treat the hammer as an object of knowledge, but to simply use it to uh, to hammer a nail or, or whatever other. You know, technical operation. Um, so that's that's the more fundamental relationship that human beings have to uh, to objects is, or, or sorry, not to objects, but to uh, 
entities, I guess you can say, um, is to uh, use them rather than to um, treat them as objects of knowledge. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, there is maybe something similar going on here in the sense that um, this, uh, what Simonon describes as this pre-technical knowledge um, is, uh, is um, a knowledge in use only. It's, uh, and it's, uh, um, it's not, a, a, and he had earlier described it as implicit knowledge. So it's knowledge that can't be um, communicated in, in language or in an explicit form. Um, and uh, um, that's the sort of more basic relationship of a human being to the natural world uh, and to the, the, the object being worked upon. And uh, the more developed form, uh, um, the actual logical form of knowledge or uh, technical knowledge is something that, um, that comes, uh, comes about only later. Okay. This is somewhat unrelated perhaps, but there's another point that uh, I find striking here. There seems to be a suggestion that between uh, technicity and work, uh, perhaps one way of approaching the difference would be the way representation itself uh, affects realization, in a sense. I'm uh, thinking of here the Bergsonian uh, distinction between uh, possible and real, or it's the critic of that distinction. Uh, maybe technical object does not uh, translate something pre-existent into matter in the way work does for Simondo. I don't know. Uh, so this I base on the passage that starts with, in order to construct a technical object that will function, man needs to represent to himself the way of functioning that coincides with technical operation, which accomplishes it. So here, representation also seems to have a hand, at least, in, in the accomplishment of technical operation. Yeah, I'm taking, I take representation here to be um, something like um, uh, explicit knowledge, um, I, I think. Um, so um, uh, in order to construct a machine uh, that will carry out a technical operation, you have to have an explicit knowledge of the operation of that machine um, and the way that it's, um, the, the functioning of the machine coincides with the, the technical operation to be brought about. Um, yeah, so I think I think representation here um, means something like explicit knowledge, um, so knowledge that can be formulated and communicated to others. And it's interesting also um, to compare this with um, uh, what he had described in a um, uh, in the last. Um, the end of, of the chapter three that we read last time, um, when he talks about intuitive knowledge, um, uh, you know, philosophy as as proceeding through intuition, um, and uh, um, I think in uh, Bergsonian um, approach, uh, intuition is uh, uh, sort of opposed to language and communication. Um, language um, uh, has to do with the world of, of matter, of, uh, of extended uh, objects in space, whereas intuition has to do with uh, the internal um, experience of the passing of time. Um, and, uh, and so they're, they're sort of opposed to each other. But here, um, 
um, this uh, intuitive knowledge of the coming into being of uh, you know, the process of, of taking on form and, and so on is something that um, he characterizes as um, an explicit knowledge uh, as something that can be communicated. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph. Um, I can read. Uh, I'll read the next couple ones because they're short. It would be extremely important to observe that the paradigmatism arising from the relation of work is very different from the one coming from the technical operation, from technical knowledge. The hylomorphic schema belongs to the content of our culture. It has been transmitted since classical antiquity, and we often think of this schema as perfectly grounded, not relative to a particular experience, perhaps improperly generalized, but coextensive with universal reality. The process of taking form ought to be treated as a particular technical operation, rather than treating all, all of the technical operation as particular cases of the process of taking form, which is itself obscurely known through work. In this sense, the study of the mode of existence of technical objects should be extended by the study of the results of their functioning and of man's attitudes in the face of technical objects. A phenomenology of technical objects would thus be extended into a psychology of the relation between man and the technical object. Yet two pitfalls should be avoided in this study, and it is precisely the essence of the technical operation that makes them avoidable. Technical activity belongs neither to the pure social domain nor to the pure psychic domain. Technical activity is the model of the collective relationship, which cannot be confused uh, with one of the two preceding ones. It is not the only mode and the only constant of the collective, but it is of the collective. And in a certain sense, sorry, and in certain cases, it is around technical activity that the collective group can arise. It's interesting here that he seems to characterize his own um, uh, project and what he's done in this book as a phenomenology, uh, a phenomenology of the technical object, um, and then he uh, he's calling for a uh, a successor project or a, a sequel, which would be a psychology of the relationship between man and the technical object. Yeah, what does the psychology of the relation mean when he is talking about the psychology? In what sense does he mean it? Yeah, it's a, a bit of a subtle point, it looks like, because he, he immediately goes on to say that um, the technical operation or technical activity uh, belongs neither to the pure social domain nor the pure psychic domain. So psychology would, uh, in a some sort of traditional sense, would be um, something that would deal with the psychic domain. Um, but he, he Simonon here is saying that technical activity doesn't belong purely to the psychic domain. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so it, it's uh, uh, this is a, a sort of psychosociology or socio psychology or something like that. It's a, um, some sort of science of the interaction between individuals and groups, it looks like. It also sounds like he's trying to avoid hylomorphism in the social sciences just as much as he is around our understanding of technical objects, right? That both psychology and sociology would, would suffer from having a sense of the individual as they, you know, as uh, one in a one in a population or one mind. These these things are already sort of hylomorphic in there in the ways that they're framed. Yeah, I think he might be 
sort of um, pointing towards his notion of the trans individual, um, um, which has to do with um, the the process of individuation uh, beyond um, the bounds of one individual. Um, so um, the the formation of a, a psychic individual um, is a um, a process that leaves behind something pre-individual, um, and so the, the different individuals. Uh, that make up a group, um, they each have uh, something of the pre-individual left within them, and so they, they can undergo a collective individuation process uh, through that uh, remnant of the pre-individual left within them, um, and that's what he characterizes as the trans-individual. Um, and so I think that might be what he's pointing, pointing towards here. Um, the, uh, the idea um, of... Um, not something that is neither purely individual, uh, the purely psychic, nor um, a, a purely group phenomenon, uh, the purely social, uh, but it's the um, the process through which the, uh, a group is formed um, through what is left behind of the pre-individual within individuals. I'm not sure here what exactly it means to say that, um, or what he means by saying that technical activity is the model of the collective relationship, um, which cannot be confused with, uh, any, with one of the two preceding ones, um, the preceding ones being the, the social domain and the, the psychic domain, I assume. Um, but um, yeah, why, why is technical activity the model of the collective relationship? Wouldn't it, doesn't it mean that the, the technical ensemble in which you find yourself will be the basis upon which you will be social with other people, right? Whether it's a you know a town that's organized around a water wheel, or whether it's you know a factory floor that's organized around some automated processes or something, that these these are the conditions under what the kind of material conditions under which you'll be so you'll have a, a collective relation to other people. It uh, could be um, my. My hesitation here is um, the word model. Um, it, it sounds like what you're describing doesn't really sound like a, a modeling relationship. Um, like that would be something more like, um, uh, I don't know, relationship of determination or something like that. Um, um, the technical ensemble would determine uh, the form of the social relationship or something along those lines. Um, but he, he suggests, or the term model to me suggests that there is some sort of uh, a copying relationship uh, between the two. Uh, so in some way, the, the collective relationship uh, is supposed to be copied from the uh, technical activity, but uh, I'm not sure exactly what that's supposed to mean. Uh, I think of it this way. I think in his context, um, in his readership, there would be a lot of people who would uh, accept a version of this statement as true, almost uh, given. Uh, so this sentence would not read for them something like uh, technical activity is the model of the collective relationship, but work uh, is the model of the collective relationship. So I think I'm talking about his relationship to, to Marxism again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. hmm, yeah. Um, I mean, that would make sense given his uh, 
you know, his what he stated at the beginning of this conclusion um, that um, uh, the technical uh, is the, the more fundamental. Uh, we have to understand work in in relation to the technical rather than the other way around. Um, um, so yeah, I guess um, if if work uh, if we treat work. Or, or if he's sort of starting from a conception that, that treats work as the uh, the fundamental um, collective relationship, uh, and then he's relativizing that by um, setting work within the context of the technical. Um, maybe that's sort of what he's uh, has in mind when he when he makes that statement here. I'm not sure. This conversation is putting me in mind of a, of a few other people, I guess, like the Muriel Combs book does this a little bit. And uh, there's another one, I think maybe uh, Alberto Toscano talks about um, the way that Simondon kind of vulgarizes Marxism a little bit, that he kind of, that, that they both sort of describe kind of missed opportunities, which are starting to sound somewhat like this, this uh, kind of tension that we're working through here a little bit, that, that he was oversimplifying Marxism and maybe oversubstantializing the conceptualization of work in in order to read his notion of technical activity more carefully alongside it and say that this is this is a superior way of looking at technical objects than marxism ever came up with hmm interesting yeah his uh his engagement with marxism doesn't seem to be uh, especially deep um i mean it's, again it's always difficult to tell because he never cites his sources um but there's no sort of uh um like there, there are points where we can say that you know he's probably thinking of Marxism here as as something to set himself against, and and there are a few instances where he does actually mention Marxism explicitly, but um, it's generally sort of in passing and not really um, uh, like a, a developed um, argument um, or uh, engagements. Um, so yeah, it would be interesting to. Uh, to see some of these ideas developed uh, with a, um, a more thorough engagement with Marxism uh, to try to understand um, a better, to have a better understanding of where the de delineation uh, lies between the two. My, uh, my first readings in philosophy of technology were uh, Jacques Ewell, who's who's more who claims to be much more informed by the marxist tradition although he's he's characterized differently by different people he's in a weird idiosyncratic spot i guess but um it, it would be interesting i guess to to kind of you know com compare and contrast like um <clears throat> like the 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 way that work is is posed usually i think awol has if he's He's much less systematic in many, many regards than Simone did here, especially with like the stuff on essence of technicity. Like, there's nothing even really seemingly correspondent to that in his um, universe of the technical society. <clears throat> so, I think that um, in some sense, there's a there's a certain um, negative ontology, or at least a kind of minimal kind of definition set of work um, in the Marxist tradition so that it will always fit within the systemat systematic uh, parameters of the economic theory. So I think that um, there, usually the accounts that I see um, of um, Marxist accounts of work tend to be minimal in, in regards 
just uh, infer that capacity so that there's further coherence with the systematic goals of Marxist philosophy. Um, so, no, <clears throat> just to expand on this, just very, very slightly and conclude, I guess, I mean, I think that um, Smodin here gives kind of an essentialist account of work that fits in with a, a very, very strongly essentialist kind of uh, um, position on technology and techniques, where, um, whereas, this, so this is kind of in, in counterpoint to what I would see as like the the tradition following from Marxism, <clears throat> which which would tend to want to kind of put put in put in the, um, in contrast uh, work to the kind of greater systematic goals, for instance, and uh, so there's a kind of distance, sort of, in in the Marxist tradition of talking about work, which which is anti-essentialist usually, or at least it comes out to be it turns out to be anti-essentialist in many ways. I don't know. This is just my vague apprehension. Um, I'm not really a, a big Marx. I don't follow a lot of Marx uh, type stuff. The, the most of the Marx that I'm interested in is like Sartre's existential Marxism and stuff like that. But um, <clears throat> and uh, Le, um, Le, what is his name? Le, um, Lefebvre. I can never say it. Lefebvre. I think that's how you say it. <laughs> it's another French guy whose name I can't pronounce. But but anyhow, um, yeah, I think I think this broadly hinges on essentialist versus anti-essentialist lines, at least uh, um, as far as as far as the contrast between Simonian and Marx would go, or Marxist uh, theory would go in the proclivities. It just that's my intuition. Yeah, there is um, there is some tradition within the. Oh, I mean, there is a, a, a sub-tradition within the Marxist tradition of uh, labor process theory. Um, um, and uh, it starts from Marx himself, of course, in Capital, a chapter on the labor process. Um, and then there are people like um, Harry Braverman uh, and uh, David Noble, I guess, who maybe be part of that tradition as well. Um, um, but... Uh, you know, look at a close analysis of the labor process um, and uh, um, uh, understanding the way that um, the the operation is carried out. Um, so there is, a, um, I guess, a, a point where you could have a, a sort of productive engagement between what Simon Don is trying to do and uh, um, um, a Marxist tradition as well. Um, but I'm not sure if anyone's really developed that um, um, uh, sort of connection between those two. What, what did you call it? Labor um, relations theory? Labor process theory. theory. Okay, okay. I'll have to keep that in my memory. I've always found it very difficult to find in just general philosophical works really robust accounts of work or labor. And I'm always... Um, I'll, I always take note when I when I see something along those lines. Um, but yeah, I think we can go on to the the um, next paragraph. Uh, we are at um, where are we? Uh, what we mean here by social group? That's where we are. 
What we mean here by social group is one that constitutes itself, like for animals, according to an adaptation to the conditions of the milieu. Work is that through which the human being is mediator between nature and humanity as a species. On the opposite end, but at the same level, the interpsychological relation puts individual before individual, establishing a reciprocity without mediation. Through technical activity, on the contrary, man creates mediations, and these mediations are detachable from the individual who produces and thinks them. The individual expresses himself in them, but does not adhere to them. The machine has a sort of impersonality which allows it to become an instrument for another man. The human reality that it crystallizes within itself is alienable <clears throat> precisely because it is detachable. Work adheres to the worker and reciprocally, sorry, and reciprocally, reciprocally, through the intermediary of work, the worker adheres to the nature on which he operates. The technical object which is thought and constructed by man is not limited to simply creating a mediation between man and nature. It is a stable mixture of the human and the natural. It contains human and natural aspects. It gives its human content a structure comparable to that of natural objects and allows for the integration of this human reality into the world of natural causes and effects. The relation of man to nature, rather than being only lived and practiced obscurely, takes on a status of stability, of consistency, making it a reality that has laws and an ordered permanence. In edifying the world of technical objects and by generalizing the objective mediation between man and nature, technical activity reattaches man to nature through a far richer and better defined link than that of the specific reaction of collective work. A convertibility of the human into the natural and of the natural into the human establishes itself through the technical schematism. Edifying the world of technology. So I guess he's what he's doing here is um, specifying in what sense um, this uh, technical activity has to be distinguished from uh, the pure social domain and the pure psychic domain. Um, so work uh, as a collective enterprise of human beings would be um, uh, something in the collective domain. Um, and uh, the um, then there's the interpsychological um, the relationship of one individual to another, um, which uh, um, uh, doesn't grasp the technical activity uh, either. Um, and then technical activity is something in which there's a there's mediation between the human being and the world and the natural world, um, but it's not um, it's not attached to the individual in the same way that work is. Um, so um, there's a, an impersonality of uh, technical knowledge uh, and technical activity that allows it to be separated from an individual. And uh, uh, so it becomes a um, um, part of the, I guess, the collective heritage or something along those lines. Hmm. All right. Uh, it doesn't seem to be much to say about this uh, paragraph. So we can go on to the next one if someone else would like to read. I'll read. By thus constructing a structured world, the technical operation, rather than being pure empiricism, leads to the emergence of a new relative situation of man and nature. Perception corresponds to the direct challenge that the natural world puts to living man. Science corresponds to the same challenge 
through the technical universe. For work without obstacles, sensation is enough. Perception corresponds to the problem that emerges at the level of work. On the other hand, as long as techniques succeed, on the contrary, scientific thought is not called upon to emerge. When techniques fail, science is near. Science corresponds to a problematic formulated at the level of techniques, but unable to find a solution at the technical level. Techniques intervenes between perception and science in order to provoke a change of level. It provides the schemas, the representations, and the means of control of mediations between man and nature. Having become detachable, the technical object can be grouped with other technical objects according to such or such setup montage. The technical world offers an indefinite availability of groupings and connections. For what takes place is a liberation of the human reality that is crystallized in the technical object. To construct the technical object is to prepare an availability. The industrial grouping is not the only one that can be brought about with the technical objects. Non-productive groupings can also be brought about whose end is to relate man and nature through an ordered succession okay. of organized mediations to create a coupling between human thought and nature. Here, the technical world intervenes as a system of convertibility. So this is the second, the last paragraph we had, the human uh, natural convertibility brought about by the technical schematism. And in this paragraph, we have um, a system of convertibility of um, a different one, I think, between one uh, uh, object, a technical object, and another, a grouping of the technical objects with other technical objects. So there's a, um, a convertibility, <clears throat> um, human human nature convertibility, in the last paragraph, and then in this paragraph, a object-to-object uh, uh, convertibility, I guess. I'm not sure, the, the second paragraph, uh, the one we just read, I'm not sure if the convertibility here is supposed to be between objects. I think we might still be talking about convertibility between humanity and nature, uh, or the human and natural. Um, um, because just in the, the line right before it, uh, before that last sentence, um, um, uh, where does it say? Sorry, just a second. Um, uh, non-productive groupings can also be brought about whose end is to relate man and nature through an ordered succession of organized mediations to create a coupling between human thought and nature. Here, the technical world intervenes as a system of convertibility. So it seems it seems to me that the the convertibility in question here is still the convertibility between human and natural, um, but it's a, a different type of convertibility because here it's not um, uh, a productive. Um, convertibility is not um, human beings operating on the natural world, but it's uh, um, the scientific convertibility. It's uh, using technical um, um, groupings of, uh, of objects, um, groupings of technical objects to um, to bring about um, a knowledge of nature or a, a couplage between human thought and nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Minimally, I guess the 
the second would just be couched in the in the in the former, or the the latter would be couched in the former. The uh, the the interchangeability of the setup, the montage, and that that kind of convertibility is, seems to be what um, is part of the structure of the the convertibility of nature and the human in, into the natural. So it seems to be that 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 one is. It's just part of the other, I guess. So yeah, it does seem that that's correct. Also, that um, to construct a technical object is to prepare an availability was an interesting, um, an interesting idea. Like the preparing an availability. It kind of reminded me of kind of business lingo when people talk about like turnkey solutions. You know, it's like. They want a method that is tied kind of directly into an expectation of some manifest results, you know, kind of a fully, um, a, a fully ready, you know, capable thing, right? So the capacity is, is just ready to go, ready to fire, you know, they've available for use, right? But it can also be read in a more emancipatory way, if I may. I think um, the, the word liberation there is not to be taken very lightly, it seems. But he says what takes place is the liberation of the human reality that is crystallized in technical object. Liberation Maybe of the, human reality uh, the human reality was not liberated, so it was enchained in a certain sense. So technical object is helping in its own way to bring about this liberation uh, through this availability. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I do think that word liberation is uh, is um, meant in a in a strong sense. Um, it's not uh, it's not just used at a sort of carelessly or, or anything like that here. Um, so yeah, there, there's um, uh, in some sense um, uh, being able to produce these um, groupings of technical objects, the fact that these technical objects are detachable and uh, groupable in various ways um, is a liberation of the, the human uh, reality that is crystallized in these technical objects. So um, I guess it's insofar as these technical objects are not tied to one particular person or one particular um, arrangement of other technical objects, um, that means that um, the uh, you know schemas of operation within that technical object are 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 liberated from those uh, ties to individual people or individual uh, technical setups. So it's kind of we're saying that it's emancipatory in the sense of allowing for a greater diversity of relations or greater diversity of of connections in terms of building out larger technical systems. I don't think it's just larger. Uh, I don't think that's just uh, yeah. a sort of a, a straightforward um, uh, equation of a larger technical system with liberation. But I think it's here. So it's uh, in, in the sort of particular case that he, he points to in the next couple of sentences. It's the capacity of using technical objects um, for scientific ends uh, mm -hmm. rather than productive ends. Um, Right. Uh, so I think that's one uh, instance, at least, uh, if not um, sort of the the 
um, paradigm case of using uh, of liberating the the human reality in uh, a technical object is um, using it for scientific ends, right. which is kind of more like a, a, a deeper understanding or more profound understanding or something like that, and not not just a question of scale of productivity or something. Yeah, it's uh, it helps to bring about this. Uh, coupling between human thought and nature. So, um, um, yeah, it, it develops a, a deeper relationship between a human being and the natural world um, by um, um, using these technical objects for scientific ends. Uh, uh, the way I see it, he may be suggesting there is something uh, limiting in the way work generally is anchored to uh, here and now, uh, by definition. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, as he understands it, the work relationship is is always tied to um, the worker and the object worked upon, um, whereas the technical activity can, is detachable from any individual uh, person um, and uh, and from any particular object worked upon. It. Uh, it can be rearranged and, and reorganized in various ways, including for non-productive purposes like science. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph, which will probably be our last one um, we're approaching the end here, um, if someone else would like to read. The word paradigm is what pushes us to the consideration of the technical object as a utilitarian one. The technical object does not carry its utilitarian aspect within itself as an essential definition, it is that which performs a determinate operation, which fulfills a certain function according to a determinate schema. But, per, but precisely because of its detachable aspect, the technical object can be employed in an absolute manner as a link in a chain of causes and effects without this object being affected by what happens at either end. The technical object can perform the analog of a work task, but it can also transport information beyond any utility for determinate production. It is the function and not the work that characterizes the technical object. Thus, there are not two categories of technical objects, those serving utilitarian tasks and those serving knowledge. Any technical object can be scientific and vice versa. To the contrary, one would call scientific a simplified object that would only be suitable for teaching. It would be less perfect than the technical object. The hierarchical distinction of the manual and the intellectual does not affect the world of technical objects. Yeah, so this one, uh, this paragraph seems to be basically just a, a, a summary of what we've read in the last couple paragraphs. Um, basically, just the uh, yeah the the reason or or a, a sort of summary of why the um, treating work as the paradigm for um, uh, or starting on the basis of uh, work to understand uh, technical reality is uh, starting from the wrong end and. Um, uh, it's only through um, starting from technical reality that we can understand work instead. Looks good. <laughs> he can. Yeah, um, we're just finishing now, so uh, uh, it's good timing. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think we can finish here for today. Um, we actually went a little bit uh, slower than I expected, so we may not finish next time. We have about eight pages left in the in the conclusion, um, but yeah, that's fine. Um, there's no, uh, we don't have any time limit, so we can take three weeks to finish the uh, conclusion if we want.
rather than two. Sounds good. I like open-ended. Okay, so uh, thank you everyone for uh, showing up and for your contributions and uh, see you next week.